Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another midweek mashup here on the Travis Makes Friends podcast. This week is going to be a little bit different because I want to draw some attention to a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, a client of mine, Jeff Fenster, who we just launched a show for, and it launched on the Entrepreneur Network. It's already doing extremely well, hitting the top charts, all that good stuff. The, his first two episodes... He dropped some pretty solid interviews. So the first one was with Tim Grover, who is a best-selling author, as well as Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, Russell Wilson's personal trainer. His, his book, Winning, is fantastic. I actually listened to that while I was running a 38-mile ultra last year. I listened to it like, for five hours straight. Fantastic book to listen to while you're running through the middle of the night. And then his other book, Relentless, which is also a bestseller, both of them fantastic. And his advice is just, is just great. I love the stuff that Tim talks about. And this this was one of the best interviews I've ever heard Tim do, and which is saying something because Jeff is, is new to the podcasting world, but he's just an expert communicator and asks really good questions as a curious guy to begin with. So we feature a, a clip from his interview with Tim Grover. And then his second interview was with a guy named Drew Brees, who is, you know, in my book, I mean, top five. NFL quarterbacks of all time. Uh, he's a savage both on the field and off the field and in the business world. And again, the the conversation that him and Jeff had was fantastic because they've known each other for a couple of years. Drew has invested multiple seven figures into Jeff's company, Everbowl, and he's opening 160 plus locations of the franchise himself. Um, and he, they're doing some other different business deals together. So they've known each other for a while. So this conversation is two friends talking instead of like, oh, I'm a fan. It's not just like, oh, Jeff is a fan. It's more like, like they're friends and they have business together. And so the insights they're able to bring out are, are really, really good. And I'm not just saying that because he's a friend and a client. I'm saying that because I listened to the episodes because I genuinely wanted to learn from two people who, whom I really, really respect. So um, we feature some clips from his conversation with Drew Brees, clips from his conversation with Tim Grover. And then we're also going to feature clips from my interview with Jeff on my show uh, that dropped a few weeks back. Jeff is a really great dude. His main business now is Everbowl, which is a, an Acai Bowl franchise. They got 70 plus locations. They're opening up one location a week. They have 400 locations that are already signed for and agreed to open. And yeah, they're doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue. They have a construction company. They're vertically integrated. They source and manufacture their own acai. So that's why if you've been to Everbowl, you know that their acai bases taste different than the majority of their bowls because they always get all the other ones get their manufacturing, all their products sourced from the same place. But uh, Jeff decided to own the entire piece of the supply chain so that he could control everything all the way up to the build out of the store, which he now does. And his company, We Build, is now doing build outs for other franchise concepts like Shaq's Big Chicken and Capriati's and Stretch Zone and so many other places. So uh, Jeff is also a guy I just really deeply respect as a business person. And he's been a friend and, and mentor to me over the last few months while we've been helping him uh, get his show launched. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode, and it's really just as a way to be like, hey, 
go check out Jeff's show. If you like listening to stuff that's going to make you a better version of you, if you like conversations with really high level, high quality people, then you're going to want to go over to whatever podcast app you're listening in right now or on YouTube and search The Jeff Fenster Show and subscribe, leave a rating review, tell him you heard about him here on the show. And I know that he'll take real good care of you guys over there. So please enjoy this episode featuring Jeff Fenster, Tim Grover, and Drew Brees. Peace. I used to get told all the time, you're too fanatical, you're too one laser focused on a goal, and you don't pay attention to balance. And it used to make me feel really bad because I felt like I wasn't being fair to my friends and my group, and I felt uncomfortable, like a fish out of water. That why can't I be okay sitting on a, on a beach on a Saturday drinking beers and not thinking about what I'm working on? Why can't I do those things? So I want to ask you, how do you handle when someone's asking you about balance? And obviously, the word balance to me is a bullshit word. But coming from your line of work and who you've been around, how do you address that balance issue in life? This is very easy for the audience. I'll tell you right now. There's a hundreds of books out there on balance. And everybody tells you, you have to find balance. You have to find balance. You have to find balance. First of all, you don't find balance. You create it. And it's different for each individual out there. The easiest way... To describe it, there is no balance. There isn't. It's true. There is none because if I'm going to be great as a as a father, I'm going to have to sacrifice something at work. Yes. If I'm going to be great as a CEO or founder, I'm going to sacrifice something at home. But as a human, when you're coaching your clients and you're working with people, how do you address that issue? Because that is there's a pull at home and there's a pull at work. Right. And you're always leaving one side of the teeter-totter and that, that's unaddressed. the key right there, what you just said, all right? So what's going to happen is people want the scales perfectly balanced. It's not going to happen, all right? Now, what happens is when you try to find balance, somebody else is controlling how those scales teeter. When you create it, you control it. Sure. That's the big difference between giving yourself permission to be who you are. When you create balance, you create it for yourself. You understand how the scales are going to be balanced, when they're going to tip one way and when they're going to tip the other way. You get to control. You never want them all the way up and all the way down, all right, majority of the time. <laughs> Sometimes it's going, to be, it's, it's going to be that way, and you have to be okay. You have to be better than okay with that. Your support system, who you have in your life, who's being selfish for you is extremely important for you to create that balance and for you to be able to tilt those scales all the way on one side for a moment and then be able to and be able to bounce back and not be judged. When I talk about people talking about being okay with being, you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged. When I talk about not being judged, not from others, from yourself. Yeah. So what you what you were talking about earlier, think about it. You were like, man. My friends were this, my friends were that, all that. So now you started to judge yourself. So people worry so much about other people judging them, other people. No, no. What happens is the biggest judgment you do, individuals do, is they start judging themselves from what other individuals have told them. Now they start to believe those things. And when they start believing those things, you get farther away from who you are. You get farther away from balance. You get farther away from you creating happiness. You know, I use this analogy all the time. If you want zero love for the audience, raise your hand. No one's going to raise their hand. Said, Who wants zero success? Raise your hand. No one's going to raise their hand. 
Who wants zero love? Who wants zero money? Who wants zero happiness? No one's going to raise their hand. What's the number on a perfectly balanced scale? What's the number? The number on a perfectly balanced scale. It's a zero right in the middle. A zero. It's a zero. If you go in there and you want to balance everything, you know what? You'll you'll get average. You'll get what we taught, what you said earlier. Okay. Yep. You'll have an okay business. You'll have an okay relationship with your kids. You'll have an okay relationship with your significant other. You'll have an okay relationship with yourself. All right. And if that's what you're striving for, then keep those scales balanced at the whole time. Keep them balanced at the whole time. And that's somebody else. And it's funny, all the individuals that tell you you need more balance in your life are the most unbalanced individuals out there. All right. They they it's their own guilt they're pushing on to you because you're doing things they can't get over their own judgment of themselves about. They're like, man, look what look what he's pursuing. Look what he's done. And he's got a great relationship with his kids. And he's got a great relationship. How's he doing? You know. So what happens is instead of them coming to you and saying, wow, you did something I was never able to create for myself, they want to destroy what you created because it's about becomes about them, not about you. So when I was a kid, I used to strive to win at everything I did. And I'd win and I was never fulfilled. And I came to the conclusion that I kind of hated losing more than I enjoyed the taste of winning. And that's what drove me. But that also leads to a lot of unfulfilled moments. Because as soon as we won, what's next? Well, you won. That's a, that's a fulfillment right there. There's individuals out there that celebrate long. I, I have this thing, celebrate hard, don't celebrate long. Otherwise, you will not be able to, get to, you will not be able to celebrate again. You will not be able to celebrate again. All right. There's a thing about achieving something and the drive to what's next. What's next? You know, in the book Winning, we talk about, <laughs> you know, everyone says, it, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. No, let me tell you this. Another cliche. All right. If you had infinite time in your life, then it's a marathon. Newsflash for everybody out there, folks. We ain't around here forever. We ain't. And if you know how to change that, you're his next guest. <laughs> right? And I will be here to listen to I will be here to listen to that. So what it is, it's many sprints inside a marathon of life where the winning line, finish line is constantly changing. It's constantly moving. It's constantly evolving. So every marathon runner that goes out there. When they go out and run the next marathon, what do they try to do? They try to beat their time. For sure. Then I like, I'm not worried about the competition. I'm not worried. This was my time. I want to beat it. I want to beat it. I want to, I need to do it better. Because at some point, from a physicality standpoint, we're not going to be able to do it. So it's a sprint within that marathon to continue to evolve, continue to get better, to continue, continue to evolve. There should be joy in everything you do. When you win, there's that moment of joy. There is that moment of joy. But again, for some individuals, that moment may last a lifetime. And other individuals, that moment may last 30 seconds. I use this analogy. Kobe played 20 years in the NBA. 20. He was champion 
five times. So 15 years he lost. I don't have a calculator out there, but if you were to take 20 years and give me the amount of days 20 years is, he was able to call himself a champion for five days. For five days. Yeah. Out of 20 years, he was a champion. Because the moment they won, the next year, Vegas had somebody else winning, and that moment was like, I got to get back. I got to get back to work. Yeah, there's the parade and all. An interesting story that I've never shared with anybody else is, you know, before every parade, we worked out. I did not. Yeah. Before every parade, there was a training session. There was a workout. All right. Chris Bosch had a story, I think, right after one of those championships, and they were going to the Team USA, and he wanted to be the first one at breakfast. And I heard him say this story. He said, I woke up early to be the first one. I was there. Say, you were there. I was there. Kobe had already worked out and was icing wo- his knees. Yeah, we were already done. Yeah. We were already, that was just, that was workout one. Kobe, Wade, Tom Brady, Serena, Derek Jeter, Wayne Gretzky. I mean, the list just goes on, that goes on and on. They always say they want to be remembered more for than just an athlete. That's great. If that's all they're remembered for, they failed. Yep. They may have won in their particular endeavor during that time, but the time after the moments that came in after all that, we failed. This is true for athletes on a team, and you dealt with this when you were coaching athletes, but you coach more. Today you coach a lot of business owners. A and, lot of and business owners. Founders and entrepreneurs and leaders. The challenge for a lot of us is when you put a team together, your standard and your level of what you expect the team to deliver is different than the masses. Mm-hmm. Always going to be. It always is. So the audience of the show, a lot of them are aspiring to achieve that level of greatness. And there's a major blockage that I have found through talking with a lot of these folks. And that is that they think that because they do all the right things, they should win and that Life's not fair. Winning should be fair. That if I outwork you and work 20 hours, and I try to explain to them, life's not fair. It's meant to be an equal opportunity, but that's the fairness, not the result. You talk a lot in your book about the price of winning and winning is not fair. What would you say to them when you hear those excuses directly? That, Tim, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I'm not getting the result. I didn't win. Working hard does not guarantee success. A lot of individuals in life work hard. Are you working hard at the right things? All right. Life is not going to be fair. Winning is not going to be fair. If you're looking for things to be fair, you've already lost. When you are working hard, when you said you did everything out there and it wasn't fair, you started with the wrong language. So what you did was you already moved the finish line closer to you, right? In your mind, you were like, there's seven steps to winning. There's eight steps to mental toughness. You forgot what happens when those steps are no longer there, when those steps give out, when you can't see those steps. You're looking for a clear path and there is no path. There literally is no path. 
There's formulas, there are ingredients, but when you look for fair, you look for the same formula and same ingredients that everybody else is putting into it. The people that break those barriers, that sometimes win over you when you did the exact same thing over and over again. They added something unique to that ingredient. They added something unique. So when you try to copy things exactly how somebody else did it over and over again, and you lose your ability for your instincts to trust you, to be able to understand what I what do I need to add? What's unique to me? What's different about wh- what what I do? And not be afraid to show it. Now you start to se- separate yourself. Now is that going to guarantee a win? Absolutely not. All right, nobody worked harder and longer than my clients. We talked about Kobe. Twenty years. I wasn't with him for twenty years. If it was just about putting in the work, if it was just about putting in the hours, the sweat equity, the mental toughness, all, all this thing that, that you would describe, the health and so he should have been twenty for twenty. He had one of the best he had he had the arguably one of the most dominant players, big men ever to play with Shaq. They didn't win every single year. Your expectations aren't always going to be included in those formula and ingredients because everybody has expectations of greatness. Greatness. Everybody has expectations of winning. Everybody has expectations of being the best. I tell you, the one thing you can do for everybody in the audience, this is real. This is real. This is going to be real easy. When you didn't win and you didn't get something that you worked really, really hard for, and you talk to an individual, and I always know this when the individual says, man, I tried my best. I tried my best. And I said, did you try your best or did you do your best? There's well, a difference. There's a huge difference. And that's, that's where all the gold is. Right there. All right, because if you try your best, you leave yourself an out. How much do you believe in the authenticity of the community of franchisees? Meaning when you have that collective group of owners and you have these people taking control of their financial freedom, do you enjoy or do you think it's important that they lean on each other? Absolutely. First off, everyone, everyone is going to have their own experiences, right? And it's that's those experiences that give you knowledge and then therefore wisdom, right? Especially those that have been in the industry for a long time. At the end of the day, that's the knowledge and the wisdom that you want, especially if you're somebody who's just getting into the business to help you maybe avoid some of the pitfalls, right? At the end of the day, like we're all going to experience some of them. And unfortunately, failure is the best teacher, right? <laughs> but that, that is how you refine. That is how you continue to improve. That's how you maintain a growth mindset, right? Mm-hmm. That you're always looking to get a little bit better. Part of you getting better is to be able to teach, to be able to mentor, and then also to be able to receive that in return. And I think the franchise community itself, whether you're a a different brand or whether you're a competing brand, there's so much that can be learned within the franchise community from each other. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, full disclosure, obviously, Drew, you you are a franchisee of Everbowl and an investor of Everbowl. So thank you, obviously. but. You've now just topped up with more stores. 
Your group now has 150 Everbowl locations coming all throughout the Midwest and South. I think it's going to be about 160, actually. Is it going to be one, <laughs> 160? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we can keep that going up, too. <laughs> yeah, if we, yeah. well, we, well, we can talk about it. But uh, <laughs> how are you able to bring that level of detail from the NFL now into your business world and to things that are less magnitude, smaller magnitude? So uh, one of my mentors uh, has said to me many times, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. I love that line. So... I've always, I've always taken that to heart with, with everything. And, and, and look, when you're wired a certain way, that is, that is just the way you do it, right? I, like, I still carry a spiral notebook <laughs> with me wherever I go, and I am an old traditional note taker, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm a pencil and paper note taker. And I have this process of taking the notes because I was always taught that you are going to remember, right, 50% more of what you write down versus just what you hear. And then I will go back and study it. And then many cases I will take that and I will have a conversation with my wife where I actually <laughs> teach, right? Or we'll, we're sitting at the dinner table and strike up a conversation with the kids and then teach, you know, what I wrote down from that day, what I studied, what I researched, the conversation that I had, an enlightening moment, right? And there, there's this, uh, I think there's this formula that, you know, you remember 10% of what you hear, 50% of what you write down, 90% of what you teach, right? Yep. So this idea that, man, if I want something to be sticky, right? If I want it to be, then I've, this is the approach I have to take. And it's just, so going back from when I was a kid, taking notes to college to, you know, pros and even now in the business world, right? That's just, that's just a habit. It's a habit mm-hmm. um, that I feel like has been effective for me and it really helps me retain. But again, it's also something that like really invigorates me. You know, it, uh, it helps me keep that attention to detail. And, and honestly, like I, when I think about every situation and, and I'll start, you know, with the realm of sports, but like in high school, like my high school had never won a state championship. Right. So we were embarking on doing something that had never been done before. And we did, we accomplished it. Right. I go to Purdue university and we were bottom of the barrel, right? Like last place in the big 10 in football, ranked dead last recruiting class. And we all looked at each other and said, by the time we leave here, we're gonna be Big Ten champions. And guess what? By the time we left, we're Big Ten champions, right? You arrive in the NFL and it's like, well, okay, well, what's the pinnacle of this? Well, it's to go win a Super Bowl, right? And here's New Orleans, right? Post Katrina, 90% mm-hmm. of the city underwater, right? Like people have been displaced, complete devastation. The team's been displaced, right? All of a sudden you're coming back and you're- This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like, like, like hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and 
uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. I mean, rebuild and you're going to go and you're going to accomplish something that's never been done before, right? And you do it. So at the end of the day, like that's what I set out to do. I want to be involved with great people. I want to be involved with great organizations and great brands that have the opportunity to be the best in class, to build a great reputation, and to go do something that's never been done before. And that takes attention to detail. But it's also what brings a ton of excitement. Yep. Right? Is that every day is like, like, what are we going to learn today? Like, what journey are we embarking on today? What goal are we going to set or go tackle today? Right? And with that in end goal and envision mind, and it's not a matter of if, it's when. I couldn't agree with that state that last <laughs> statement more because that that was the biggest pivot for me was when I stopped putting a timeline. My goals and my success has changed dramatically in my life when I stopped realizing I used to be I need it by tomorrow. I need it by a month from now. If I'm not this by a month from now, I failed. When you take that time away, it changes from if to when. Mm-hmm. Cause you will win. It may take you 12 years to win that Super Bowl or 14 years to win that Super Bowl, but you keep doing the right things. Yeah, good things will happen. Good things will happen. The last question I really wanted to ask you, and it's about business. We know how you pick the brands you work with. We know that you'll be successful in whatever you do because you follow that proven model. But if you could talk to yourself 10 years ago, 20 years ago, knowing what you know now, is there something that you would change and I, I know not the lessons or the failures, but is there something you would change with who you became as a, in the business world that if you can go back, you would say, hey, you know what? This is what I've learned over the last, we'll say two, three years that, that you realize, hey, maybe it was a little bit something you need to be humble about, something you needed to change as Drew because opportunities get thrown at you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're obviously Drew Brees. You, you come with a level of, of track record and people want your brand. They want you. They want your brain. They want your relationships. So maybe, maybe there isn't something like a, a minute detail, but is there one thing that if you can go back 10 years, you would have changed that would have altered the whole, the whole business side of you now? So I'm 44 years old. I've been retired for two years. If, if you look at those first 42 years, 28 of those were dedicated to being the best football player I could possibly be, right? Like if you go four years of high school, four years of college, 20 years in the NFL, right? So two thirds of my life was where my full-time job was, Hey, like each and every day I'm waking up and it's like, what am I doing to train? What am I doing to recover? What am I doing to help a teammate? What am I doing to get better myself? What am I doing? Right. And then obviously I've got my family and I've got, you know, some of the other business stuff I'm trying to build. But at the end of the day, like that was, I was trying to master being the very best quarterback that I could be. Right. So even though I learned so much from that, that can be applied to the business world, I still, you know, when I retired, I felt like, man, I'm behind, man, I got to catch up. I mean, really, like there's that, there's that feeling. 
had I not had a football career, right? And I was kind of starting from scratch, you know, fresh out of college or wherever, right? And I'm sitting there like, man, I want to learn about business, right? Like I want to, first off, find mentors, right? Find mentors and just glean everything you can from them, right? The other thing is seek to experience every job that you could possibly have within the framework of a business, even the stuff that just totally sucks, right? Or that is just like, you know, you, what are these, these shows, you know, that you're watching that are like, uh, you know, like worst jobs ever, right? Like, like <laughs> dirty jobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like do, because even though that's not necessarily the job that you're planning to do for the rest of your life, it is a job that will teach you a skill set or a component within a department, right? Something that is going to be valuable for you when all added up, it's going to equal the position that you really mm-hmm. want, right? Or that title that you really want or that accomplishment or like that that building that brand or that company or whatever it is. Again, it's a bit of this growth mindset, but it's understanding that, yes, here's the end game, right? But then here are all the little pieces, all the little skill sets, all the little things and again, I, I go back to this traits and attributes. Like, I, like I, want, I need to develop these traits, these attributes, these skill sets, right? And so how do I do that? Well, if I do this job for a while, that's going to help me gain that, right? And I need to, I, I need, I need to, I need to be in, in accounting, right? Like, I need, I need that background, right? I need, man, I need that marketing, right? I need, like, w- like just add them all up, and that's going to equate to the skill set of this person that I'm striving to be. Yep, karate kid. That's right. So here you are. Early 20s, yep. you get married, yep. and marriage comes with an infant daughter. So now you're a dad, yep. and you're a husband, and you're early 20s. You have six figures in student loans, and no prospects for a career. <laughs> yes. really, really good job, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> mom and dad were proud. Yeah, I'm sure they were. <laughs> I'm, sure you, I'm sure your mom was really, really stoked yes. about that. And I can tell you they were, they were extremely proud of the day I told them I'm not taking the bar and not doing anything with this law degree. <laughs> okay, so... What was the next step from there? <laughs> so I did what most people do in that situation, and I got a job. My only job I ever really had as an adult. And a friend of mine worked at ADP, the payroll company. Okay. And so I had always done sales jobs, telemarketing jobs. You know, Dave Meltzer, mutual friend. I worked for a bunch of his companies in high school selling. Okay. Why? I learned why sales. Because good sales, people who are good in sales understand it's actually relationship building. Hmm. I don't sell. You know, I, it's, I used a concept called solution-based selling, which means I found people's problems and I identified solutions for them, in mm-hmm. which case I was able to make some money by doing that, ac- accomplishing that and helping companies do that. So real quick before we move on to that, I completely subscribe to that because there's this kind of, there's this closer culture that exists inside of sales that I think, I, I understand what they're trying to accomplish and I have a lot of empathy for it. I did five, six years of door-to-door sales, which is a different type of sale than, you know, like we're talking about selling studio spaces or, mm-hmm. you know, selling franchises, different buyer, different prospect, different process. I understand all of that. However, I think that there there's this this closer culture that exists that's just is really like alpha bravado type of a culture that discourages a lot of people who would potentially be really great salespeople from getting into the sales industry because they're the stereotypical, you know, bullshit used car salesman type sales that they teach and they train and they you know, say that this is the way to be successful when there's just an entire world of this other culture inside of sales that's way more relational based selling that you can actually make multiples 
of what somebody selling used cars is is making. And it has nothing to do with, you know, use these three closing lines <laughs> and techniques on the phone. Don't let them hang up. Follow up every day. There's this other world that exists where I try to encourage as many people as I can to start your career in sales mm -hmm. or go into sales at some point and how good it is for so many other, you know, skill sets, but also good for your bank account because you can earn while you learn and you can earn a good amount. Oh, for You're sure. Earning, you know, you can out earn somebody. 20 years older than you when you're in your early 20s if you learn how to sell and you have and you get into the right selling opportunity or the right selling vehicle. So, I mean, good for you for recognizing that early on and then capitalizing on on that early on in your career as well. Well, and to your point, whether you think you're in sales or not, everybody's in sales. Mm -hmm. If you're working for a company and you're in the accounting department and there's a promotion opportunity and it's between you and three other people, have you sold yourself to your supervisors? Yeah. And selling means different things. There's the transactional-based sale, which is more the used car style approach, which means I don't care about the longevity of this relationship. Mm -hmm. I want to get them from point A to point B and get them to buy something Transaction. and transact. Yep. That was never my bag. I did. I sold, sold for a company called Thermoview Industries selling home improvement stuff over the okay. phone, telemarketing. Yeah. That was the closest to transactional say, sales. really close to that, yeah. It was an adventure. I learned that I don't like that. I'd rather make a relationship with you. And if you go through my career trajectory of all the different businesses I've had, they they go together such in a symbiotic way because yeah. I can resell the same individuals, new services, new products, new opportunities, as long as I provided value along the way and they actually were happy with the transaction. Value-based selling, yeah, where it's built yes. on the satisfaction of customers rather than you coming up with the win. Correct. It's like, th th that's on like that whole culture man. It just like beats it over the head that like, if you win, the customer loses or if the customer wins, you lose. And it's like, well, that's just not true. If mm -hmm. you're doing it the right way, me winning is you winning. Correct. It's not me winning. And then like, ha ha, gotcha. And it's also, that's not a way to treat people. It's also thinking about it differently. I think so often, and we, we were talking about this offline, just about, not having me twos, right? Mm. And not being a me too salesman or saleswoman, right? Yeah. So at ADP, for example, we were selling payroll services, which means companies would hire ADP to be the back office and handle the paychecks and provide them to all their employees on a bi-weekly, semi-weekly, or monthly basis. Well, okay. That's not very sexy. It is more transactional. So they had a model. It was called 55 and 2. Make 50 cold calls a week, set five appointments off those 50 calls, and you'll close two appointments. You do that, you make presence club, congratulations, you do your job. Okay, it seems very formulaic, like who couldn't do that? Mm -hmm. But that's what everyone was doing. So what I did differently, and this was a, it allowed me to be extremely successful in, in six months there, be the number one sales rep in the country, mm. which was really awesome for a 24-year-old in that situation. Sure, when you have six figures in debt and your parents think you're screwing up your life. And I have yeah. a kid and now a fiance. <laughs> yeah. Yep, so I started in, in August of 2007, and by January of 2008, I'd bought a house. I'd almost paid off a lot of that law school loan, and I had made over six figures my first six months out of law school wow. on a $38,000 base pay plus commission. I did it because I started to ask myself, well, why do I want to go and sell one-to-one-to-one-to-one -to, -one -to, -one -to, -one to all these business owners? How can I get them to come to me? I have a real solution. Everyone needs payroll, and ADP was the market leader yeah, by far. Is. Still is. One out of five Americans got paid by an ADP check. Wow. That's a pretty crazy stat. Isn't it? That. And then we had a, a line, which is if someone was saying, well, I'm choosing between you and someone else, well, you don't get fired for choosing ADP, meaning we all make mistakes, but ADP is the, the, we're the best. Yeah. So you know you should have the confidence that you're putting your payroll system and your employees' paychecks and their livelihood with a company that is the largest most in the reliable, industry. Most reliable, most trusted. Easy yeah. sell, and it's cheap. So I said, okay, well, who else needs payroll, right? So I took a minute because 
this is a common theme for me and I, and something I think that people need to get better at as a skill I try to teach others, which is when you have a problem, don't immediately solve the problem. Take a second and evaluate the problem and say, can I do something else which will make this problem go away? Hmm. So my problem was I had to find business owners and get them to buy payroll. So most people started 55 and 2. ADP gave me the answer. Well, that's a lot of work. And that's a lot of work to get two deals a week. Yeah. And that's just trading my time for the next however long to be average. Right. Well, people who need payroll tend to be new business owners. All new businesses need payroll. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to get them to switch payroll, which is a harder concept. I need to get them fresh. Well, what else do new businesses need? Bank accounts. Okay. Insurance. Okay. Accounting. Accounting. So what did I do? I went and made relationships in my territory with new business bankers, Hmm. (laughs) CPAs and bookkeepers, and insurance agents. And my whole model was to spend my time building those relationships and say, every business I meet with, I'm going to tell them that by banking over here with you, and back then it was Bank of America was my banking partner, Hmm. I'm going to say by you banking with my partner blank at Bank of America, I'm going to have more access to your data and I can set this up even faster and I can waive your onboarding and initiation fee. And I'm going to bring you, Mr. Banker, clients. Who do you bookkeep with? I use this bookkeeper. By working with them, I'm going to have access to all of your reports. I'm going to make sure that your accounting and your payroll systems are tied together. So end of year, when it comes time for tax filing, and all, so I started to build a dream team of sales reps mm-hmm. where we're a partnership. Yeah. I'm going to scratch all their backs. And guess what? That banker saw eight to 10 new businesses a day. Who do you mm-hmm. do your payroll? Oh, I don't know yet. Talk to Jeff at ADP. Yeah. Talk to Jeff. at. So every day I'm getting inbound leads of not people who are asking that I have to sell why they need our service. Hey, Jeff, I was told I need to set up payroll with you from blank at the yeah. bank. Fantastic. It's like I became, you're, a, you're a, a box on the checklist. Correct. Instead of, you know, somebody researching to see what payroll they should use. It was like, oh, I've, I hear this is where I should <laughs> set up payroll. Everyone trusts friends and, and people that they do business with, right? So your banker telling you do payroll with this company, they already are validating me. Yeah. Right. So I became a, a order taker yeah. as opposed to a cold caller and pavement pounder. That's why I tell a lot of people, man, start in sales. Do something in sales because mm-hmm. like, if you can figure out something like that, you get money, you get freedom, and you improve on a bunch of skills that will help you later on in life anyway. Well, it's a revenue generator. Like, if you want to make a lot of money, you have to be a revenue generator for yeah. a company. Correct. And it's why, you know, oh, why don't policemen and teachers make more money? They deserve it. They do deserve it. Yeah. They deserve to make more than most professions. Especially teachers. Yeah, of That's course. My of mom was ones. a teacher. Yeah. They just don't generate revenue, unfortunately. They're a cost center to whomever is paying it. Right. Yes, there's, they're making investments that will generate revenue for the, you know, our tax code, et cetera. Right, right, right. But they're not actually turning in an ROI that can be, allow them to get paid more. That can be immediately measured. Sales is immediate. Yeah, right. If I sell a million dollars of your product and you have a 20% margin, I made you 200 grand. If you pay me 50 grand to do it, I can negotiate up to 150 and you make 50 and I make 150. Right. And you'll turn me over as many times as you can. Right. Yeah. It's just a model. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Because you can tie it back to an immediate return. Correct. How do you go about deciding what's next? Well, first, you think nothing's next. You think you're going to retire. You think you're just going to hang out at home. And then you realize how boring that may be for someone who has that engine to sure. to go out there and to do create. that. Yeah, it's just I, I got bored and I started to drive my wife and kids crazy. And they uh, legitimately how old said, were you at the time? this was 2016, so six years ago. So I was 33. Yeah. Way too early. Yeah, way too early. 32, 30, yeah, 83, 90, yeah, 2016, so 33. Yeah. So I 
literally my wife said, go do something. You're driving us crazy. Like <laughs> you, you, you have too much of an engine and focus to, to not be doing stuff. Yes. Just go do anything. Please leave. Like, get I love out you. of the house. <laughs> but please get out of here. But it was good. I took, I took about a year to figure out what was next. Yeah. And I realized what I wanted to do next was more of a passion project mm-hmm. uh, outside of startups, which I've learned to my entrepreneurial ADD or my ability to not do something for more than five years and get bored. Startups is great. Yeah. That's why I like the serial entrepreneurship term. My wife will say degenerate, but yeah. it's what I like to do. I wanted to do something I was really passionate about. And health and wellness was like a passion of mine. It's something I believe in. It's something I spend a lot of effort doing. I import superfoods. I work out a lot. I focus on prevention of illness. And I spent a lot of time trying to convince friends of mine to eat better, move their body more, and be healthy. Yeah. And so I figured, let me disrupt this industry. Let me let me go play in it. You know, I think I have a, a voice that should be heard in the space. I think I can add value here. And so I started it without really a goal of where I am today was not my intention. Yeah. You know, like all things, you tell me what your plans are in five years and see if you actually sure. end up there. But so this, that's, that's how Everbowl was born. That's how Everbowl was born. Which now has 60 locations plus signed on. 310. 300. Yeah. Yeah. So not a, not a total flop. Not yeah. a flop. Yeah. You could be doing better, but you know, <laughs> not a, not a complete flop. And then out, out of that has... There's a couple other brands that have that have spun out of that, and it seems like something you really master, bro, is just you let life happen, and then you search for gaps or problems that need solving. Like a true, like this is entrepreneurship at its core. I want to ask you this live because I think it's really valuable. You get to work building your first Everbowl location. It costs you over three hundred grand, two hundred eighty. Oh, so almost three hundred thousand dollars to yeah. build out, and you were like, "This cannot be." <laughs> the answer to this problem like this is this is a real problem if it takes me two hundred eighty thousand dollars to build out each location how is this going to be profitable it's going to take me x amount of years to get my money back to you know our margins are are gone this is not a sustainable model and i also wanted to build a hundred of them and so i would need a lot of money sure sure which was really the biggest impetus for why i did what i did so what's interesting to me is that you're not the first franchise in the world there's a lot of franchises out there, right? Yep. And they all use that exact model. They get a franchisee, they sign them on, they sell the location, they do the build out, they open. There's a ton of space between the time that they sign and collect whatever, you know, upfront fee for the franchise is and the time where that business is actually open, bringing in customers and they're able to collect royalties on yep. that customer. There's a big gap that happens and there's a lot of room for error in that gap and it's really expensive. So instead of just being like, ah, forget it, you know, restaurant business isn't my thing or the restaurant business doesn't work well, you decide to come up with a new concept. And so now what you do is you have this entire manufacturing facility where you prefab the entire build out in your warehouse, ship it out to the location in a box, send a crew, set it up, and you're done in five days to seven days and you have a brand new location. Why do you think that nobody was doing that before you started doing it? And why, why was it something that was just so apparently obvious to you just to be like, oh, it doesn't mean that I quit. It just means that I invent this new way of doing it. Thank you for that, by the way. That was a really good rendering of what <laughs> WeBuild is. For those who didn't listen, we're going to dub that over and over again. But it's a handful of things. And this goes back to that luck comment, which is most people who start restaurants, let's use restaurants, are chefs. Mm. So when I started Everbowl, and I want to go back to answer your question because I think it's important to get there. You know, my dad and mom both told me not to. My wife jokingly told me not to. Like, 9 out of 10 restaurants fail. Why do 9 out of 10 restaurants fail? Because they're started by chefs. 
Mm. What does that mean? It means they're not entrepreneurs in business. They're they're a chef. Yeah. They're that business owner we talked about at the beginning. Sure. So their problem. They're the plumber. Yeah. They're, they're, they're phenomenal at yeah. cooking. They're better chefs. They make more better food than we do. Yeah. That's great. But that's not an entrepreneur. That's not going to create or solve that problem. Mm-hmm. They need to open a restaurant and be their chef. Mm-hmm. So they have to find a company to do it. Of the entrepreneurs who start concepts, whether it's a retail footprint or a restaurant, a lot of them don't have the means, right? Mm -hmm. Because while, yes, anyone can go start a construction company, I spent a lot of money R&Ding and learning and overpaying to build to get to where we are today. Mm -hmm. So I could have opened four more restaurants or build the WeBuild. I invested in the WeBuild side ahead of, it's kind of like what Elon Musk did by building charging stations before the cars were there, Mm -hmm. knowing that I'm going to build the cars, but without charging stations, no one's going to buy the cars. Sure. So I had, but he knew he had enough capital to be able to outpace that. And I had enough capital personally to make those investments before I brought in investors and before I was able to fund an opening five, six, seven restaurants. And if my first restaurant ended up failing, that construction company wasn't doing anything. So you only had one Everbowl location before you built. So my very first one was built by one of my good friend's sons who was working at the time. He was one of the main construction guys on the job. He helped design it, and then he helped do a lot of the work. We brought in other people. Yeah, I went to him and said, do you want to come work for me and build out my construction company? So the same guy who built one, Jake, built all of them up until recently. Gotcha. As part of the head of WeBuilt. So I went to the individual who built it and elevated him to the head of a company. Yeah. And brought him into the, and then we started R&Ding it. And we had no idea what we were doing. So it, And I don't know anything about construction. Yeah. Like, I don't build anything. Full disclosure, I don't even know how to do Legos. Like, there's a rule like holidays and birthdays. If it's not pre assembled, we don't buy it, or my wife shop at Ikea. I don't shop at Ikea. And my wife is literally putting together my kids' stuff. (laughs) I don't do it. But to the whole point of sales and marketing and stuff, I don't need to know how to do it. I just had the resources. So, why was I lucky? I was lucky because I was in a position to recognize a problem. I'm not a chef, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm good at startups, I'm comfortable Mm -hmm. in the unknown. I'm good at sales, so I knew that I could sell this to investors later and to my, et cetera. I could recruit the people, and I was going to build enough restaurants where I was never thinking about using it as a as an outward-facing company. I was doing it for myself. Sure. So my plan was to invest in building this so restaurants 20 through 50 were going to be cheap enough where by restaurant 30, I could recoup my investment. I'm going to lose money on the first 20 and pay more than I would have had to. Yeah. And a lot of people just aren't in that position. Yeah. So- Yes, that's the Fenster luck. I was lucky enough to be in the position, but I also was in the position to notice the opportunity and I was lucky enough to, to recognize it. So I made those capital investments early. Yeah. And as a team, we put the right mind share together and the team of smarter people than me figured out how to do it. Got it. I just set the goal of saying, this is what we need to accomplish. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.